Yep. Hey everybody, what's up? This is uh, Becoming Ultra, Scott Jones. Uh, there's a chance I'll post this over on Athlete on Fire. This is for athletes of all types, but we're definitely focusing on runners today. This is pretty cool. I got my uh, my cousin. This is my cousin that's closest to me in age, and he's still freaking <laughs> over 10 years younger than me. This is BS. Anyway, I can't blame his parents <laughs> for having him late, but uh, he lives out in uh, Western Carolina. Josh, what's up, buddy? Not much. How's it going? I'm I'm excited. I, so this happens every once in a while when I get when I get buddies on the podcast or you know family not too many family members consistently, but but just the chance to talk to to my people back east that I don't, I don't talk to on a regular basis because you guys are shutting down when I'm you know when I'm ready to talk or hang out. Like a lot of times you guys are going to sleep or shutting down a little bit, and then in the mornings it's like crazy early. So I'm always happy to to talk and hang out with um with some of my people back on the East coast, but, uh, there's, there's going to be a reason for having you on. You're not just like some random dude that I'm going to have the world listen to, um, on like a, a familial call here. Um, Josh is, is uh doctor of physical therapy. Uh, why don't you just really quick, just set it up. Like what, tell us your expertise, where are you working right now? Um, I'll, I'll set people up as far as what we're going to talk about. I mean, it, we're going to be talking about injury prevention a lot today. Um, and every time I get you on the line, we'll be talking about that, but, but yeah, just set it up, let people know who you are a little bit. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah. So doctor physical therapy, um, have worked in a variety of settings. Currently I am working in a sports medicine clinic, um, that is housed in one of the buildings at Western Carolina university, um, coordinating that clinic. So we see a variety of clientele and patients um, across the age spectrum. Um, a lot of the athletes um, from Western Carolina. Um, so so that's a lot of fun. Uh, prior to that, I've been through residency and had some advanced training in um, pain science and in uh, running and uh, returning uh, the athlete uh, to competition um, and then recent, most recently have been working on completing my, uh, fellowship. Uh, so been working hard on that and, uh, hoping to be integrated more into the academic setting here shortly. Um, I'm a clinician at heart, but I'm, I love the teaching aspect. So I've taken on, um, an adjunct faculty role with Western Carolina right now and have been really excited to be able to help out where I can. Awesome, man. Uh, my cousin is very smart. We have very similar thought processes, even though we're coming at it from different angles, as far as careers are concerned. Um, I, I think, I don't know too many people that had your, your undergrad. I don't want to misspeak, but was it exercise fizz with a minor in music theory? <laughs> Close enough. Close enough. Yeah. Uh, exercise health science. Um, yeah, not bad. <laughs> I'm just, I, I think it sticks in my brain because I don't know anybody else in the world who had that combination of uh, my, uh, majors and minors in, in undergrad. It just cracks me up. So, so you, uh, I just want people to know you a little bit. So you, you grew up playing a bunch of different sports. Our, our dads are brothers, which is which is awesome. Um, well, I, are they still brothers of mine? It's, okay, I won't do that. <laughs> uh, I'm gonna freak everybody out. Um, so. Uh, so yes, yeah, so you, you grew up playing sports, but you 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 kind of fell in love with music at a pretty early age, and um, 
Oh yeah. Yeah. So you want variety is the spice of life, right? I mean, when you're uh, in school, like, did you want to study? What, what what did you want to do? I, I I'm just trying to get to how you got to where you're at today. It's, we never really talked too much about this. Well, you know, my my personality is I kind of want to do all the things. So, um, and I still do. I mean, I want to be a rock star and like world renowned clinician at the same time. It's just life doesn't work that way. So. Um, so yeah, in college, I, I don't know, pretty much like everybody else. I'm like, cool, med school, PT school, I don't know, music, let's do it. Um, and music for a while seemed to take the front running, and then it didn't. And, uh, you know, I, I think in the back of my head, actually, the PT career kind of got started when I was 14 or 15, because, you know, dad and mom were both nurses in, in healthcare, and uh, dad said, you know, you you're not really much for blood and guts. I think uh, you should check out physical therapy. And so he made me go shadow um, a couple guys. And uh, I thought, oh, sweet. They work with athletes because that's all I shadowed. Um, obviously, the physical therapy world is much larger than just working with athletes. Um, but that, that kind of piqued my interest from an early age. And um, here we are. All right. So the music, what the- – what what all did you play? Like if if somebody asked you and you had to give an honest like if a musician asked you what what instruments can you play proficiently? How, what would you say? How many? Uh, at one time I probably would have said four. Which are? Uh, piano, drums and percussion, bass and uh, guitar. Nice. I just think that's awesome. So I'm going to, I'm going to throw you, no, I'm not going to throw you into the bus, but I'm going to tell some stories about you. So, oh, dear Lord. <laughs> so, okay. You're, you're what? 10 or 11 years younger than me? I'm sure. Four, are you 31 yet? Nope. All right. We'll call it 10 and a half. So you're 10 or 11 years younger. Closest cousin to me in age, which most people have, especially back where I, you know, where our family's from, West Virginia, North Carolina, East Coast. Like most people have tons of cousins within months and years. No, not me. So you're the first cousin that pops out. I'm like, oh, what's that? Oh, is he? Is he just a? Is he just a prop when I go visit my uncle and aunt? Because for the first ten years, you were just a prop. I just beat the crap out of you. And, and but then eventually, uh, you turn eighteen or nineteen, and for your senior year in high school, um, me and my wife had just, I think we just got married or we were just together, and uh, my. I, I invited I invited all the cousins to come out here for their senior trip, and you came out here, and we had fairly epic trip, except for you're sick for half the time. Um, yeah. But since that point, what we'll say, twelve years ago, um, you've come out to Colorado two or three times to adventure. We've done a huge trip in the Grand Canyon. We've done fourteeners. Um, we've adventured a lot for for family members who are so far in age, and I think having the same. Having um, our dads, who are really pretty close in, in age, be so close to each other was a big catalyst for that. I think we just kind of have a, a quick connection when it comes to that stuff. But of all, so if I was going to ask you right now, of all the adventures, you, you went to Alaska with us when we drove to Alaska. Um, mm-hmm. Of all the adventures, what is what is one of our adventures that just sticks out in your head? That, that uh, if you're going to tell a story about adventures that we've been on, um, it would be the first one that you thought of. <laughs> <laughs> probably even though this is telling on myself a bit um you said i'm smart i don't know after this story but um probably when we were driving driving to alaska and uh, i was pretty stoked because um, the old and beautiful uh big you know big blue 
uh, van that we were driving. I got the, the opportunity to drive a bit on the uh, windy Alaskan highway and didn't realize that uh, – well, let's just – I just remember mixing up my kilometers and miles per hour <laughs> and going, what was it? Uh, I think the speed was. <laughs> I remember exactly what it is. Cause this would be one of my oh. top five stories of all time. You were, <laughs> you were 21 and you were the youngest person in the car. We bought a pass. A, we bought a 15 passenger van for $1,800 in Colorado. We sold it for 2,500 bucks in Alaska before we even left to pay for all the gas. That's Everybody was tired of driving. Josh is like, I'll do it. So he gets on. We're on these crazy mountain roads in Alaska, and it's 60 kilometers per hour. And I literally think that we're about to tip over about 18 times. And we, I was like, hey, Josh, stop. I want to take a picture. So I, I made him stop, pull over the road. I was like, give me the freaking keys. You're not driving anymore. He's like, what? I was like, you're going 60 miles per hour in a 35-mile-per-hour section so you you literally almost killed everybody in the car <laughs> i don't i don't remember it that way but i do remember going really fast or feeling like i was going really fast oh. uh, and then I, i'll share probably my just one of the coolest trips we've ever done we went after my dad passed away like all the guys on my da- my dad's side of the family um which there's not too many of them but we would have um we'd have these guys weekends and it'd be once every two or three years typically because we try to do pretty big cool things and after my dad passed away three and a half years ago um your dad was about to turn 60 and he really he really had a bucket list item of of uh floating in the grand canyon and hiking out so he got me and you and our brother my brother-in-law jake who's just awesome dude so us four were we were on board for this thing and there's two stories that were great. The first one was me and Jake and Josh, uh, we drove down to the Grand Canyon from Colorado and we stopped on the side of the road, hiked a couple miles back in the, in the wilderness near Durango and we set up a triple decker, uh, yeah. hammock setup where I was at the top and scared out of my freaking mind for falling 20 feet in the middle <laughs> of the night. So we did that and survived it. And, and then we get to, uh, we, we drive for 15 hours or whatever. 12 hours and Josh is awake the whole time. And right when we get into the grand Canyon, he falls asleep, which is just mind boggling to me. And then, uh, we see, we see Steve, my uncle, Steve, Josh's dad. And he's like, guys, I've been just hanging out waiting for you guys. And, uh, I've been watching these tourists and the funniest thing ever just happened. So, so, uh, just to preface this, my wife is part Japanese and my uncle was married in Japan to Josh's mom. So this is not like a bias. Okay. So he's like, yeah, these people are all standing around and they're like, Oh, look, it's a moose. It's a moose. And it's, it's a big Japanese tourist group. And, um, and first of all, there's no moose in the desert. Uh, second of all, it was a horse. So the first thing he, do you remember that when he told us oh, the yeah, story? like what, like 50 people? Like, I mean, just, yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Oh, it's cracking me up. So that, that was like just a fun, fun little story. But then we get down in the canyon and, uh, just probably, I don't know. Like if, if I'm having a bad day and I want to pep up, I just think about that trip because the beauty is like, how do you describe that place, Josh? Like it was, it was just magical, I thought, but. Yeah, life changing. I mean, it's unparalleled. And, you know, having, I think both of us have probably hiked that thing several times and, uh, 
I don't know, to, to be there and then do the rafting aspect and, and see it day to day from the bottom and then t- from the top as well, getting the whole picture of it was just, it, yeah, you can't, you can't describe it really. No, I think that's what it is. Cause I, cause I had been there a few times and when you stand up on the rim and you go hike a little bit down and you come out, you, you have appreciation for it. But when you start at least ferry and it, you just gradually get deeper and deeper into the canyon you see how the water, water carved it out and, and then you have a fifth of scotch on the second night, like it kind of takes, <laughs> it brings things into perspective a little bit, but no, it was, it was, uh, it was emotional cause my dad wasn't there. It was, uh, it was awesome. Just fellowship with guys that I really respect and love. And, um, I don't know. It's just a cool thing. Me and Josh, well, we all got up at, uh, this is a story. We, we can tell the story in detail one of these days, but we all got up at like two in the morning to beat the heat cause it was hot as freaking crap that like 135 40 degrees and um yeah. your dad really didn't want to deal with the heat so we all got up at like 2 two thirty, and our goal was to get up there and under me and josh was our goal was to get there in under four hours because the guide was like oh yeah you can't get up there in four hours and we're like okay whatever dude <laughs> and uh so we hammered up there and we got we got to we got up there right around four hours and ate breakfast and and then uh your your dad and my brother-in-law came up and just a i mean that's got to be on every single person's bucket list, especially runners who love like a good challenge because you can, you can run down and, and pop out of that thing. So, oh, yeah. um, we've had lots of adventures for, for a couple of people who live really far away from each other. And, and, uh, you know, one of us wasn't born in the right time, but it's okay. It's not my fault. Mm. So one of the reasons I wanted to bring Josh on to the show is, uh, for, the conversations about in injury prevention where he's doing these deep dives. He's researching on, on, on a regular basis. He's in academia. Um, you know, when I came out for my career back in 2003, I bounced out of academia into entrepreneurship and I've tried to keep up as much as I can on, on all the science and things that are, are right to do for injury prevention and right to, prescribe and recommend and um and then you know like the virtual coaching it's a whole different beast try to do we try to do our best to make sure that people are doing what they need to do to to reach their goals but um technology has changed things so we're gonna talk about injury prevention a little bit and before before we so basically team bu uh we put a question out and, and the question was um, bring it on my, bring it on my cousin, Dr. PT. We really want to focus on some aspe- aspects for Q and A's for the next few weeks. Um, we want to know about specific injuries and we'll answer the questions as best we can. No dumb questions on this one. We're going to keep it rolling and we just want to know what you guys have questions about because people have all these niggles and things that just are really irritating as runners, uh, to keep, to keep the goal is to keep moving. So these things hold people back. Um, so we're, what we're going to do is we have we we got we had a lot of questions probably twenty or twenty five questions we're going to address three of them tonight. Um, before we do that, I wanted to dive in a little bit to we talked off air on some of the research Josh is doing right now. Uh, you met, you mentioned some Achilles tendinopathy research and um, if you want to set that up a little bit and and I'll just ask some questions. It, it can be somewhat anecdotal from my end because I have some personal experience with that, but. Uh, yeah, what are you working on right now? Sure. Um, so it's, it's been really exciting as a part of fellowship. Um, it's 
part of the tasking has been to be a part of a multi-center trial where we look at um, traditional kind of rehab for Achilles tendinopathy, tendinosis, uh, in conjunction uh, with dry needling. Uh, And so it's basically we have two randomized groups and uh, one group is the traditional rehab approach and uh, then one with the traditional rehab plus the aspect of dry needling for the tendon structure, um, which is, again, really exciting and really cool. I think it goes back to this term that people may not be too familiar with. It's called mechanical transduction. And basically what that word is alluding to is the fact that whether it's through exercise or other means, uh, you know, our bodies have a really innate ability to heal themselves. And it's all based on um, applied stresses to the tissue. And when those stresses are optimal in the right volume and dosage, the body can take care of itself pretty well. And when they're not, then we see issues arise. And so some of the research that I'm helping take part in is to see, well, can we take some of these things that in rehab or, or other professions, you know, like um, chiropractics and uh, osteopathic and uh, some of the other <clears throat> um, health professions from a manual therapy standpoint, and does that give us better outcomes in regards to pain and disability? Um, and, and of course, this is this is not just addressing tendinopathy from from just athletic population. This is across the spectrum with people who have been diagnosed. Um, but really fascinating, and you know, some might argue that the needles bring a unique um, way of loading or stressing the tissue um, using that maybe that same principle of mechanical transduction or mechanotransduction to aid the tissue and and healing, um, which is really fascinating. Uh, it's a very hot topic, of course, right now in the uh, fitness world um, and in healthcare. So. so, so from a movement standpoint, I mean, we'll kind of skew a lot of these answers towards runners because that's that's who's listening and, and endurance athletes, recreational athletes, however you want to however you want to frame them. Um, sure. When we're talking about, t- first of all, can, can you make a uh, distinction between tendinosis and tendinopathy? Sure. So there's a lot of terms that fly around out there. When when we think of tendinosis, we think more of a, a diagnosable degenerative effect of the tendon structure. Um, and tendinopathy is kind of the overarching term for tendon issue, whether that's the itis, the osis, the uh, or, or anything there uh, there under. Semantics. It, um, kind of maybe. You know, the itis would be reflective of a more acute event perhaps, um, where okay. you actually have an inflammatory cascade. So, um, uh, you know, or even swelling um, and pain that uh, is acutely present versus kind of a chronic issue, meaning, you know, uh, three, uh, three, six months or more that kind of rears its ugly head at times and, 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 and eventually can get bad enough where, from a runner standpoint, like running just does, doesn't happen because the pain's that bad. And it, and it may not be accompanied with swelling or, or kind of the acute aspect of tendonitis. So how, how about talking anatomy a little bit of Achilles tendon? Because, you know, a lot of people either get the, the tendinopathy in, in the belly of the Achilles or insertionally where it, it attaches down below the heel a bit. Sure. So, yeah, talk about that a little bit so people understand what we're talking about. Okay, well, the most the most common 
um, presentation is, is the mid the mid tendon uh, issue. Um, insertional is a little bit different, and there's a lot of different research as far as what might be going on there. Um, so, uh, basically, from an anatomy perspective, uh, really what it comes down to is, is it's a loading issue um, that kind of sets off, whether it's an itisinosis or, or whatever the issue is, it's, it's the capacity of the anatomy, in this case the tendon, or lack thereof, to handle the load that you're trying to throw at it. Um, and so we have these, you know, relative inflammatory events, if it's the itis, or, or over time, um, just a, a degenerative effect. Is it sharp? Is it dull? I mean, I've had it before, but if you if you're answering it clinically, is is this a sharp pain, a dull pain? If and and visually, you know, this is an audio show, so when people are thinking about their their ankle, like you can you can picture where your heel is behind your foot, and then above your heel a little bit, the the little fleshy kind of rubber band feeling um, uh, above the ankle area where you can kind of yeah, squeeze the bowstring. There you go. Yeah, so there's just, is yeah. that sharp pain? Is it dull? What are you guys seeing mostly? Well, I think it, number one, pain is very dependent on the individual athlete or person's um, subjective experience. I mean, it really is. Pain is so different for everyone. Um, but some of the classic signs is if we have like the, the, the most common, that mid-tendon um, pain, what, what often you'll find is if you do kind of get your hand down there and kind of uh, work your way up the tendon into the calf, you'll find almost like a nodular or a nodule aspect in the tendon, and it and it's, can be quite painful. And, and it can be sharp, especially when you're squeezing it real good. Um, uh, painful when putting too much load. So you might be running a certain distance, and then things kind of get more in the sharp realm of pain. And basically what we're talking about there is whether it's sharp or, or kind of dull and achy, um, we may be talking physiologically about um, uh, a different uh, uh, a different nerve uh, being responsible for the the sensation of that um, issue, and so it can be perceived as either sharp or or, or dull. So what I, what I've noticed this is something when I when I personally ramp up volume, I I have noticed like that that Achilles pain, and typically it goes. Like right now is a good example because I'm ramping up. I'm going to run pretty far distance this summer, and uh, you know I've been lifting and doing agility stuff, but nothing, nothing like like structured. And I'm starting to ramp up my my mileage a little bit, and I'll feel it kind of early in the run. And but what I do is like I'll stretch, I'll stop and stretch my calves three or four times during a run, and that seems to relieve most of the pain. And then afterwards, the pain's gone. And uh, you know this is anecdotal, but. But when you're listening to this as a PT, what what's going on right there? Well, to me, to be honest, like there's still a loading issue, and so the stretches or whatever you might do might be helping in the moment. But the the you know that's pretty typical presentation of an early uh, ten, a degenerative process is like you'll you'll be having some issues early in a run, and then you kind of get going and get your your wheels greased, and then you're like, oh okay, that was weird. I'm maybe just a little stiff. I I feel good. Um, as that progresses, um, and granted with people who aren't experienced programmers or, or really don't know much about how to attenuate loading, um, or attenuate their training volume, um, there over time, maybe I'm going to see, you know, progressively worsening symptoms and longer symptoms during the run to the point where 
with some athletes, like it gets to the point where they can't run. So, yeah, no, it goes to that point for, for a lot of people. I think for, for me, like it's kind of a, uh, you want to just kind of wait and see after what the next run is going to feel like. Keep volume down, kind of allow your body to get used to the load, to the load a little bit before you really progress. And I think a lot, a lot of people like to write out their, their programs for months and months on end and you're ramping up no matter what. And I think that that's definitely to the detriment of a lot of runners out there for sure. So before we get to the specific questions that people are asking, what are, what are you guys finding with the dry needling as as far as how it's helping the, the load and the stress to the tissue and, and why that helps and, um, just speak on that a little bit. Well, so we could spend hours on that topic. Um, and you know, part of the reason, part of the reason the research is being done is because it's, there's a lot of proposed mechanisms and theories behind why it might work, um, whether that's just altered pain, uh, altered pain sensation uh, or modulation of the pain mechanism or actual tissue change. And, and uh, from my standpoint, you know, the, the, the jury's still out. Like that's why we're doing the research is how much dosage, what's actually happening. Um, there's some pretty cool things when you, when you take a needle and you wind up tissue under a microscope, uh, as far as what we're able to do and stretching of the fibers and, um, you know, ideally uh, stretching some of the fibrotic changes that can occur underneath the Achilles in, in, in particular. Um, uh, but, you know, the jury's still out on what the optimal dosage that is there and um, <laughs> is it more meaningful to do that alongside your, t- your loading or rehab program? And that's, that's why we're trying to study it right now. Um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions out there and a lot of people must, you know, much like anything in the fitness world will, it's like, Hey, you know, this, this does this and we sell it, um, like it's fact when, when, you know, in general it's, it's theory, um, it's not been proven yet, um, to any high degree. So, um, I, I, you know, I, from, and I, I guess I gotta be careful saying this cause I might make some people mad, but, um, you know, I, I think the the dry needling in particular has uh, really fascinating potential um, as an adjunct. But in in the end, the human body is amazing at healing itself given the right conditions, right? In my world, it's all it's always about trying to get the athlete or the or the patient back pain free as quickly as possible. And and in the quick fix society that we live in, which I guess speaks to an even bigger issue, but people don't want to be told like, yeah, you're going to have to do these heel raises for six months and then you'll, you'll be okay. Um, with a good progression and good loading. Uh, they want to say, no, 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 no. Like I've got a marathon to run, right? I, I I need you to throw these needles in and, and, and really get me back. And, and you got two weeks, please. Um, Cool. All right. Um, so if we can speed up the the normal body's processes of helping modulate the pain and help that tissue really, um, you know, upregulate collagen and the extracellular matrix and help uh, help the integrity of that tissue, then, yeah, I mean, wow, what a cool thing. Yeah. So what, what about uh, dry needling? What about eccentric loading uh, really helps the healing process for – for tendons specifically, because you hear that all the time. Like, like for me, if somebody comes in the door and they're, and they're saying that their Achilles is bothering them, like the first thing I'm, we're going to work on is 
Look at their biomechanics first and foremost. Focus on some basic strength stuff like glute loading because that's huge for runners. Like you, you don't want to put all the stress to your to your lower extremities completely, or your you know your ankles and and knees completely. You want to make sure your big muscles are doing the job. The next thing would be eccentric loading, which would be for for Achilles would be like like heel drops, like basically for anybody listening, like a calf raise, where you slowly lower yourself on the way down to make sure that. Um, there's extra blood flow to to the region. Like the the from my world, that's those would be some basic things: form, uh, proper loading and biomechanics, and eccentric loading at this spot that is kind of irritated or hurting. Uh, what what am I missing from a standpoint of like why why is the dry needling going to be more efficient at helping people heal, and why is the why is the loading and the stress to the tissue so important? Well, you know, first I would say the eccentric part is kind of it's kind of the gold standard of what people think about in tendon rehab. Um, but with much of the newer research um, there, that's going into that, we're we're not only looking at eccentrics anymore. It's kind of like that was the holy grail for a long time, and that's a fun story in and of itself. Um, but uh, you know, now we're seeing like, oh, interesting. Uh, the concentric has its place. Slow loading, uh, a slow loading with high loads, um, slow velocity, like some of these other uh, factors can actually do the same thing over time or even do it better, um, depending on the human that is doing them. Um, but the, the dry needling, you know, as far as being an adjunct to that healing process is just like I mentioned before. So a lot of times with the ten- tendinopathy in particular, tendinosis, degenerative, that tissue is de- degenerating it's literally uh it's, it's literally going un- undergoing a degenerative process um and so yeah at, at the baseline if we can bring some oxygen and blood flow to the area great um but more than that if we can if we can get into the heart of that tissue and and stress the aspect of it with a needle that perhaps you can't touch with your eccentric uh calf raise because you and I both know when you go to stretch your your calf or you or you go to strengthen a muscle, you're not it, it, it it's not a status quo across the whole muscle. You're not actually stretching each individual fiber of the muscle exactly the same, and you're not stressing it with your calf raise each individual muscle fiber the same way. So the idea is um, if we can get the degenerative aspect of the tissue to undergo some stress and some change. Um, we might be missing that with our actual, pro, you know, exercise programming. Yeah, no, that's good. Nice. Yeah, I, I, I thought of like four episodes of this show that we could do just off of that, just like, you know, <laughs> like like percussive instrument, all the stuff that people use. But that's a whole, like you said, hours. Yeah. Right, so There's hours. <laughs> which is why I, I love talking about this stuff because nothing, nothing's there, – there's no – perfect training program for anybody and i've told you my my struggles with like virtual virtual coaching is like i don't get i don't get my eyes on people i don't get to see if they're and this is just straight i don't get to see people are faking some of the pain that they're talking about or if it's real i don't you know like there's just so much to it when you're programming versus when you're coaching in person and and being able to answer some of these questions uh, on a platform like this is huge so all right we're going to go through uh, we have three questions that we're going to answer. Uh, there are a couple people connected to each of these questions. So Rebecca and Laura, Rebecca Rame and Laura Podraski. Um, I'm going to read Rebecca's question, but it, it should take care of Laura's question as well. So 
This is from Rebecca Rame. Let's talk ankles. In November, I rolled my right ankle, eversion, brutal, while running. I did the rice treatment and it seemed to be improving. There was not much running happening in December, so I figured everything was moving along well with it. In January, when my mileage picked up, I started to feel pain. About, uh, level about a three. I don't know if that's out of ten or five. I, don't, I have no idea what that means, but I'd say ten. Uh, when I ran in soreness, when I ran in soreness, when I got up after periods of rest off the couch or out of the bed. Feeling some pain on both medial and lateral sides. I'm afraid of increasing mileage for fear of aggravating it. Am I doomed? <laughs> so I, I love the ending to that. Uh, and then Laura's question, just really quick, was best PT exercises for a broken ankle? I'm running again, but still don't have all my flexibility. So, um, I mean, we know how important ankle mobility is. Uh, Josh, why don't you dive in? I guess to Rebecca, do you have her question in front of you so you can kind of reference? Yeah, yeah, I think I, I think I got enough to to tackle that at least, hopefully. And forgive um, <laughs> if I use nerdy language. Uh, help me, help interpret for me. I will Scott. ask, I'll ask <laughs> questions if I think it's over my head. All right. <laughs> All right, cool. Uh, so just trying to break this down as simply as possible. Obviously, <laughs> via social media, some of these questions um, can be tough. Uh, first, I would say this is without seeing you and you know a proper examination, evaluation, this is not like medical advice. This is just thoughts based on the question. So um, I would say you're definitely not doomed. Um, <laughs> Step thought, one, not I doomed. Guess, yeah, not doomed. That's the good news. Um, uh, I guess, you know, e eversion sprains are relatively rare in comparison to inversion sprains. So inversion being like ankle, um, you know, people typically think about rolling their ankles. Um, that's an inversion sprain when the when the lateral aspect of the ankle is the one involved. Eversion would mean that the inside of the ankle is involved, and that's that can be a little bit different, and there's a lot more that might go into that. Um, uh, but commonly with runners like Rebecca returning to higher mileages um, after an injury, I, I generally see a big issue with capacity of the tissue. Um, and, and, you know, they come in to say, but Dr. Jones, it's just running. I never had to prep for it before. And, uh, you know, I say, well, you know, perhaps that's somewhat true, but once you've had an injury, like, like a bad ankle sprain, especially, um, it's really important to understand uh, the body's healing response and to, to build back up that capacity of the tissue. I mean, we have studies with spaceflight and astronauts that, that show, you know, physiological tissue changes after just 24 to 48 hours of sitting on your butt. I mean, so, you know, when stuff's not stressed optimally or, or we're resting from an injury, you're, are you talking you're, about the atrophy? Uh, there's been some interesting research on just atrophy within 24 hours. Is that the same? Is that what you're talking about? Some of that stuff, yeah, wow. yeah, and so it, why sh it's not any different for someone who rolls their ankle and is not running, is not walking well for three days, and then just isn't doing much for even just a week, you know. So I, I think the big thing I would, you know, kind of try to get across is that when the tissues aren't being stressed, they're going, you know, they're undergoing catabolic changes, and so. If you didn't take the time to uh, take that training load and, and back it way up, um, maybe keep the aerobic uh, capacity up with some cross training, but then build back into the ankle, make sure the muscles and the tendons can handle stress of, of, of just basic strengthening and then proprioception and balance stuff, 
then yeah, you know, I, I would expect that when you increase your mileage, there there would probably be some some issues, um, especially from a, even just a take it the muscular route. If uh, Scott, I think I was talking earlier before you hit record about my analogy of a suspension bridge and. People may find fault with it, but I think it's an easy way to conceptualize. If you have a suspension bridge um, uh, held up by just a ton of cables, and you think about your muscles and tendons and ligaments as the cable system holding up the bony architecture or the bony bridge, um, it makes a lot of sense that if those cables aren't able to withstand the loads, especially when you're upping your mileage, well, those forces from the ground have to go somewhere, and it's gonna, you know, it might go into the joint. It might go into into the the long bones. It might result in some stress fractures, all sorts of things. But um, uh, it, you know, anecdotally, you gotta have your cables optimal before you start stressing the bridge. So um, that's kind of what I would have for my, you know, my question back to Rebecca would be, well, cool, you did ice and and all the stuff to kind of respect the initial injury, but then. What did you do to get it back to where it needed to be before you started up and you're running or even getting back to running in general? So, Well, what would be two or three things that, that a runner after – e-version running is, is tricky. I've – yeah, I don't I don't know anybody who's had an e-version from running. It's, that's way tougher to hurt um, for, the, for that sport anyway. But what would be a handful of things, two or three things that, that runners could do to – kind of test to see if they're ready to, to, to get out there and jog, run a little bit again? Well, good, good or bad. Um, there's a lot of thoughts on this too, but you know, one of the standards that's kind of taught is, um, can you, and you may not be able to do this to begin with, which I, I would say is probably a bigger issue. Um, but if, if, you know, if you can do just from a basic strength standpoint of the, the calf and, um, looking at, the being able to do 20 to 30 single leg calf raises and no pain, that's great. Um, and then can you do just pogo hops? And and by pogo, I just literally like like a pogo stick, like you're, you're hopping on one leg um, explosively, plyometrically for 60 to 90 seconds. And is there pain with that? Any issues, you know, assessing how, how am I doing? Um, that's kind of a prereq for me um, post-injury to be like, yeah, you know what, I'm, I'm – feeling pretty dandy it's time to kind of start getting back into my training volume i, I love that because if, if you're listening right now hit pause and you need to go somewhere and try to hop for 60 seconds on your right foot 60 seconds on your left foot see what the differences are see which leg feels stronger see if there's any pain in each either or each of those and if you if you have a really hard time doing that for 60 seconds um Running is way, way harder on your body than that. Uh, the explosiveness, the vertical displacement in your body that, that that's going to happen from just hopping on one leg. Um, I used to have my athletes run or hop, single leg hop a quarter of a mile uphill, up a 10% great hill, just to make sure that they were ready to, ready to go. And, uh, it's very, it's very similar to, it's very torturous, but you know, like, it lets you it lets you it lets you know pretty quick if you're if you're good that's to go. That's right, absolutely. You know, we got we got a saying like "get fit to run, don't run to get fit." Right? Like you, if you're going to be doing some of these those ultra endurance aspects, uh, you have to have a primed system, meaning strength, endurance, mobility, all of that to be able to take the loads. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's a lot. 
It's a lot. Um, and I guess I guess we kind of tackle Laura's, you know, a, a little bit in there. I, I would just say with to Laura, um, you know, much like with Rebecca, I'd want to make sure you're paying your dues as far as returning the capacity of all your tissues, especially after sustaining a fracture. Um, after breaking something, and especially if you're non-weight bearing for a long time, it's important to make sure the strength, mobility, and stability, or even the motor control return to, to baseline. As an anecdote, if flexibility is still an issue, um, even though your bone's completely healed, it could be for a couple of reasons. Um, commonly, I see that like adaptive shortening occurs. So basically, say you were in a walking boot, or say you just weren't moving the ankle through the motion of what it would take to run, then the muscles, ligaments, and uh, even the joint capsule can can the tissues can uh, shorten as a result of not moving through a, a range of motion, um, and and the nervous system even can keep you from having regaining that flexibility quickly. We call it extensibility, tissue extensibility. So basically, as a protective mechanism, your your nervous system may not let you comfortably move through your what was your full normal range of motion um, because it's like hey. Uh, we're not ready for that. We're, we haven't been exposed to this and you're just having me go right back into some, some, some pretty crazy ranges of motion where we don't really have the strength to, to have that capacity. So, um, those are kind of two of the, the things, um, I would see kind of the natural protection mechanism and then the adaptive actual shortening of different tissues. Um, anecdotally as well, sometimes flexibility may become an issue when strength is only in a certain range. In other words, you might feel tightness or, or, or tension and what maybe you perceive as a flexibility issue, but it might be your body's way of keeping you in a range that you actually have the capacity to, to handle the task for. So in other words, like repeated, um, uh, you know, pounding the pavement or the trails, um, your body may just be limiting you to a range that your muscles can do what they need to do. Yeah, that makes sense. <clears throat> so, that kind of addresses ankles a little bit. So let's let's address uh, hips. So we got Holly and Andrea talking about hips. Andrea asks, "I'm going to ask both the questions, and you can answer." Uh, help, help to keep hip flexors happy, especially anterior TFL. Uh, so we can talk. TFLs are a big thing with uh, runners and parents. We can talk about TFL for parents when you when you got your hip kind of cocked when you're holding your kid. Um, I did you ever notice that with your kids, Josh? Uh, no, because I prepped for it. You absentee know? father, absentee father is what I'm <laughs> gonna, I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna go there. And then Holly said, uh, and Holly, I've been working with Holly a little bit. She's been dealing with this hip flexor strain for a few weeks. Is this normal? I can't tell if it's getting better or worse. Um, let's go with that one first because, okay, yeah, yeah. go for it. Um, okay, so you know, my in my mind, I'm always like, well, okay, you know, we use that word strain. Uh, you know, pretty flippantly um, in in regards to well, with endurance athletes in general. I, I, if if it truly is strained, then you're that's a fancy way of saying tear or overstretched, right? It's a nice way of saying um, tear or overstretched. And assuming it is a strain of the of the hip flexor, um, you'd really, I mean, you'd be looking at four to six weeks baseline for just tissue healing. Now, that doesn't mean you'll necessarily be dealing with pain for that duration, but if you didn't stop um, any aspect of your training to any high degree, um, then, yeah, you're not really giving that tissue time to lay down new collagen, to help uh, uh, get back to uh, a normal kind of tissue quality. Um, 
so if if you just kept going, uh, it, it would make sense that it's seemingly baseline, like not better, um, not really making it worse. It just just is, especially after three weeks. So it'd be you know interesting to have a little bit more detail there. I guess is where my mind is at for for Holly. Yeah, I think I, well, for Holly, um, it was definitely uh, the the virtual coaching thing is is a whole different beast, Josh. So like, oh sure, it's like what we're dealing with with telemedicine right now. Right. So I mean, it's, the programming part is easy, but you know, if you want to do a good job, and like I, for the first fifteen years of my career, nothing was virtual; everything was in person. So, so there's a huge programming aspect to it. Um, trying to increase engagement and make people kind of earn their next week. That's, that's kind of where I've gone with my training. I don't, I don't put things out for weeks in advance. I put things out a week in advance and you got to earn it by, by, by Sunday. So that's one thing that I've kind of stuck with hip flexor strain. Like Holly's in Jersey. I'm in Colorado. I can't see what her gait is, is like necessarily, but she's gone to a doctor and they've kind of said, yeah, it's probably a hip flexor strain. And, and the strain, the strain part is like, Words mean something, right? So if you say strain, uh, I was so I was so adamant about this back in the day. Like, if you say you strained your hip flexor, you're having a hard time walking, right? Um, but de- yeah, I mean that depends, right? Because you could have anywhere from mi- just basic micro tearing to a full full you know full thickness tear. Yeah. Um, so it depends, but yeah. So for so for Holly, what we've and I can speak to this. So, so what we've been doing is. Her, I was like, hey, you gotta go see a, a sport, a PT who deals with athletes or an ortho, orthopedic doctor. Like, those are the things that I always recommend people. Um, and she saw somebody and they're like, yeah, let's, let's get off the weight bearing stuff a little bit. So I put her, put her on the bike and said, hey, let's hit, hit at least 60 minutes on the bike. It's not weight bearing. It shouldn't be irritating. If it's hurting on the bike, then let me know. Blah, blah, blah. All this stuff. It, it's not hurting her on the bike. She's feeling good on there. Um, cool. She's got good. four or five more days before she, she has a work trip where she's going to be hitting the bike. And it is gradually getting better. So, um, yeah, I guess, I guess that's where we're at with Holly right now. Okay. Well, I, so even just you talking about it, it's made me think of some, some keys here. The tendency for people who have even just a grade one strain is like, oh, it feels so tight and, and nasty. And I just – I just want to. I feel like I need to stretch it, oh, and that, yeah. and that would be one of the things I would caution people against in the first four weeks, at least. Is is um, respect the tissue healing. After all, generally a strain occurs and there is tearing. You don't want to overstretch a tear, ideally. Um, not to say that all stretching is bad, because that does help uh, aligning of the collagen and helps uh, remodeling of the tissue to some degree. But but I see people really overcooking their grits. How's that for a southern term? Yes. Um, <laughs> overcooking the grits with it and uh so i i would say a typical way to progress with that would be really to to start even just assessment wise start with some isometrics of the hip flexors and be like yeah you know that's not provocative feels pretty good and move into some actual strengthening of the hip flexors to help um that tissue realign and and heal optimally best movement or two that you can describe on strengthening hip flexors Hmm. Okay. Well, I don't know about best, but uh, you've got classy non non sexy versions of strengthening the hip flexors, which is like your your straight leg raise, right? Yep. Um. Uh, personally, I really like a combo. Um. 
kind of uh, killing a bunch of birds with two stones. Uh, with runners in particular, I like working on just total um, system stiffness and stability. So what I like to have some people do is with a medicine ball overhead, um, like an a overhead press while they're keeping uh, good – uh, good posture and good um, core activation, buzzword, yay, core activation, um, and then have a band basically around the stance leg and have the band around the toes of the affected leg and work on a single leg march and hold um, dynamically. So repeated, nice. just at, uh-huh, like a repeated single leg march essentially. Yeah, so um, you got your arms more- overhead, so that's going to force kind of good posture and good Good core activation, like you said. And then yep. you're going to be driving your working leg up like a high knee? Yeah. 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 So let's say it's the right hip flexor, right? She would she would have the band around the right toes um, connected with the left foot on the ground and would be raising that right leg into a single leg march. Um, you know, it's about 90 degrees or slightly above, pausing for a second, and then control lowering it back down to the ground and then right back up into that high march um, trying to reproduce uh, similar like to running essentially Um, the second one I like that's not quite as specific to running um, would be to activate posterior chain at the same time this is a higher level exercise for sure but it but everyone knows how to do a little bridge right like um, on your back and you bend your knees and you lift the butt in the air Um, well, if you throw a band around the feet um, while you're doing that and you bridge up and then you do a little bit of that single leg march from a bridge position, it's a real challenge to the whole system and can work on that hip flexor too. Yeah, I like that. We do this a lot over here. That's, you know, I can't do that with virtual clients, but come to Colorado. We'll do that. Um, <laughs> no, no, I love that. I, I, I think um, for the hip flexor strain thing, the one, I guess the one question I have for you, Josh, is like when you are healing but you've gotten used to what it feels like to have kind of an irritation or pain in a certain spot, when is the time to start pushing again? Does that does that make sense? Well, I and I would say it's different depending on the pathology. Okay. So let's just keep it within the wheelhouse of a strain. If you're having there's there's actually some cool research right now that's coming out in regards to hamstring tears and whether it's okay to exercise with pain or not and um, I <clears throat> different philosophies and we'll have we'll see what this research is set, says in the um, next couple of weeks but basically what what has been the standard is mild discomfort might be okay but you don't want to push through pain yeah for hamstring. Well, for for any muscle strain in general, right, right, right. yeah, and and with the hip flexor, that would be that would be kind of the way I take one of my patients. Yeah, I mean the thing the the one thing that I keep going back to is like if it legitimately affects your gait, if you have to suck everything up just to keep your gait completely normal, then then you probably need to back off a little bit, and that's seems to work. That's right. You know, all right. So Res- last respect your body. Your respect body's good it. at telling you what it needs. Actually, before before we get to the mic and stress fractures thing, I think uh, Missy had questions on that too. Let's go with Andrea's question about the TFL. Um, hip flexors, anterior TFL. Uh, explain what anterior TFL is, what it does, and why people have problems with it. Okay. Well, without, without getting t- too complicated, because TFL has a couple roles. Um, 
uh, as far as the legs concerned and, and, and running and walking and all, all that stuff. Um, I like the way she put, how, how do you keep your hip flexors happy? Um, my initial thought was quit pissing them off. Um, <laughs> uh, there's, there's really no easy answer to that one without a proper movement evaluation. And I know that's kind of a cop out, but, um, it, or just more detail about the aggravation in general. But a few thoughts I have with runners or endurance athletes with the, with the hip flexor, or the TFL funkiness, um, is one I'll go back to what we talked about with strains is I see a lot of overstretching of the hip. Hey, really quick. I think explain, explain what the TFL is for, for some people listening who might not know what it is. Yeah. Okay. So you you got your major players as far as uh, the hips concerned. You got your hip flexors. That's in the front. You got your TFL or your tensor fascia lata is the fancy one for that. And that sits kind of anterior and lateral. Um, and actually a nice way to find that sucker is if you put your, finger on the most bony prominence of your pelvis on in the front, and then you find your hip bone on the side of your leg. Halfway between those two points is kind of uh, some muscle belly of TFL, and that can get kind of cranky. Um, it's an actual uh, an internal rotator that helps contribute to internal rotation of the hip. Um, the, but depending on the position, it can also be um, an aid in abduction of the hip for some people. And so uh, a common issue you'll see with when you're trying to work on strengthening of the glute, glutes, glute medius, glute minimus in particular, which are the muscles right behind TFL um, on the most lateral side of the hip. And uh, you'll see TFL kicking in and doing all the work for those for the big boys, um, which is kind of interesting. And it's just a, a very common compensatory mechanism when you have weak or inhibited glutes so uh hopefully that helps the tfl is also blamed a lot with people with runners with it band syndrome because it has heavy connection into um that the iliotibial band the it band which connects down below the knee yeah yeah i mean i mean glute activation glute strength glute stability is just huge for runners it's uh i don't know that, oh, that's it's, it's, massive i mean we we granted it's you know some small studies but but some of the studies we do have indicate that one of the big um uh, correlations with runners that are injured is a uh, high hip abduction or or what we call like a medial rotation syndrome so you have you have a a pelvic drop or hip adduction during stance phase and that's a kinematic factor that's common when you have the weak glutes yep or lack of endurance. I've had ITPS one time. It started off acute, turned into a chronic. It's it's miserable. All I did was focus on glute strength and and glute medius strength for two months, and it was gone. And it was just like, what the? Are you kidding me? Like this is all it took. <laughs> but it happens. I mean, I've had so many clients to deal with issues like that. So I think Andrea, the the quick answer for you is like work work on glute strength, glute medius strength. Work on the big boys. The, the big muscles so you're, so the little guys don't have to overexert themselves. And that's the answer for a lot of chronic issues for runners. But, um, yeah, and, yeah, absolutely. And I think you could probably speak more to this as far as running form, Scott. But, um, one of the other things I tend to see with people who aren't in, uh, really who aren't fit, uh, to be doing a lot of high mileage with running is, um, when they get tired, they kind of sit back, 
um, in the bucket in the running, so to speak, yeah. almost relying on the hip ligaments and the hip flexors to act as a spring or a support system. And then it kind of helps bring the limb into swing phase again when they try yeah. to advance the limb. Um, and it looks kind of funky, but if you watch some, some of these, I mean, you watch any endurance event on TV and you kind of see some of that pop out, um, uh, which again, okay, so let's look at glutes and let's look at, let's look at some abdominal strength there and endurance. Abdominal, getting to full hip extension is huge. Like a lot of people just sitting back in the bucket, like you said, um, just you lose a lot of hip extension when you lose a hip extension it's because your glutes aren't firing off to the full range and i mean i don't know if we're talking overheads or not but that's def that's definitely something you see at fatigue for sure it's especially in ultra running because there's a point when you're just dragging your freaking legs you're just trying to get (laughs) like josh or me we're we're not like elitist as, as far as like how are you getting from a to b like at some point you're so fatigued you're just going to figure it out right so yeah. so it's not saying that any of that stuff is bad it's just saying like in your training these are things that you can consider for sure that's right and and the last thing i would speak to is it's common social media and and you know fitness gurus like there's always the self-management technique of smash it to death right and i and i say that flippantly but take your favorite foam roller lacrosse ball ice ball you know there's a million and one toys out there um and and you know do a little self-love sometimes that can just be enough to change the perception of the tightness or the or the aggravation too and that's the quickest way to be like you know i'm gonna roll out the foam roller three minutes prior and let's just see how it feels yeah for sure all right (laughs) excuse me we got one more we're gonna go over it's uh it's Mike and Missy special. I gotta find it here. One second. Uh, Missy asks, "Are there any strengthening exercises one can do if they're prone to stretch fractures in feet?" And Mike said, uh, "Let's see. Oh, he said, I, I feel like you're asking that question for me. I had three stress fractures last year. Two in my right foot, and the last one in my left, all metatarsal. So we kind of talked about this off air a little bit, but I'm gonna let you. Even in this thread, I said, "Hey, I have some." Good answers on this one. I'm going to defer these for some news perspectives because people probably get sick of hearing my voice. So this is where I'm <laughs> going to let you kind of dive in on it. Okay. Uh, well, you know, I, I think to start this discussion on stress fractures off, um, well, in most running injuries in general, I saw a quote like three weeks ago that I really loved. Um, it said, a, a running injury is kind of like a hangover. It's usually caused by too much, too quickly, and as soon as we feel better, we do it all again. <laughs> oh. Um, <laughs> Yep. You know, I think, I think there's some truth to that. Um, and and especially when you're talking about stress fractures, um, because geez, like they're, they're hard to identify a lot of the time, uh, because when, you you know, even before you've developed a full blown stress fracture, you may have some of the signs and symptoms, the bone edema and that kind of thing. But, but on your classic x-ray, it may not show up. Um, you know, basically the symptoms can be kind of vague. It can be a really tough condition, and it seems to be a bane of a lot of our endurance athletes. Um, and, you know, another population that suffers from a lot of these is uh, the military uh, personnel. Um, so, so wow, there's a lot we could talk about here. Um, this can be a hot topic in the healthcare community when dealing with endurance athletes. Um, I think a lot of things can play into it. And, and the easiest way to kind of break that down, 
um, would be kind of intrinsic and extrinsic factors. Um, so, you know, what, what we mean by that. Extrinsic factors, meaning your mileage. How far are you running? The number of training cycles that you do in a week. Um, your running pace, some of the kinematic stuff, the type of exercise you're doing, um, how hard is your training surface? Are you road running? Are you trail running? What, what's going on? And are you switching it up and why? Um, footwear, that's another extrinsic thing that, that, we, that actually uh, makes a difference. Some of the intrinsic factors, um, these would be position of the limb, so the kinematics and of, of how you run, um, your bony anatomy, you know, we're all given what God what God gave us, um, and some of us have more of a predisposition based on our genetics and our anatomy um, to developing stress fractures, and we need you know to be aware of that. So muscle strength is is one for sure. Also, being female kind of leads to a predisposition to having a higher incidence of stress fractures. Um, other intrinsic factors people don't really think about, but nutrition. It's huge. If you're a smoker, you're already adult. You know, you're already starting off from third place. Um, a previous <laughs> injury, um, and uh, then family history as well. So there's a lot of factors, but we kind of break them into extrinsic and intrinsic. Another one with stress fractures or any injury in general is there have been a, a lot of studies recently that showed. If you're sleeping less than seven hours over a two-week period, your risk of injury can increase by as much as 51% in endurance. Yes. What's the main catalyst for that? uh, That's a great question. Is that a hormone thing? I would say that would have to be a big part of it. But without breaking down the studies, um, that would would be a big part of my guess. Um, Just overall capacity of the entire system is not there, right? So even at a local muscular level, your endurance is not going to be the same as if you were well-rested. And that may hit home with a lot of people because we have studies to show that not only risk of injury, but um, pain or or the intensity of pain can be much worse when sleep quality goes down too. So, you know, for, uh, shoot, Scott, I even think you at one point were like, yeah, I get three hours a night. It's great. Um, But uh, it's really shown to be such an important factor. (laughs) Three hours? That was, if that ever happened, that was a long time ago. (laughs) That's good. Yeah. not to call you out, sorry, but um, but I think that's another huge factor that we need to think about is is the body's rest and healing process happens largely when we're asleep, and if you're not sleep, getting quality sleep, uh, according to you know these studies, like seven hours, then then you're at a higher risk, and that's just I mean that's reality. And granted, life is what it is in America, but but you need to be aware of that so you can try to optimize those things. Um, so so you know. Um, I would say for the stress fractures and the repeated stress fractures, um, so a lot of those factors are, are important to hit in, hit on. Um, you have to be smarter about your training volume, um, your nutrition. So make sure you're getting calcium and vitamin D, right? You're not, you know, watch your caffeine, you're not smoking, hopefully, um, stress and then targeted strengthening. Um, if you have a history of the stress fracture, you need to be including calf and foot muscle strengthening um, as a way, uh, you know, from, from the bridge perspective, again, to kind of offload the bony architecture. Um, yep. 
Uh, honestly, I think I think some studies would point to this, and I maybe I'll have to do some digging. But I want to say I read something about like you know they predict that somewhere between eighty and ninety percent of running injuries and especially stress fractures are preventable. <laughs> Um, because most of them occur due to training errors, pure training errors. Like, I'm going to run a marathon, and I'm only going to run in order to run the marathon, and that's how we end up with some injuries. Yeah. Um, So It's tricky. I mean, there's a balance to everything, right? So, And to answer that completely would would be – you can't answer any of these questions completely because as as a good PT or a good trainer or a good coach – you're taking everything into consideration for one individual person. So when you have like a general question from a person, you're answering it for the for the population. It's always tricky to to pinpoint things. But I think everything you brought up is just food for thought. It's good 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 ways to get people thinking a little bit about their own training. Hopefully, for the people who ask these questions specifically, it helps you out and gives you some guidance. That's what we want to do. Um, yeah, yeah. For Missy and Mike too, with the stress fractures, like if you if it's an issue you tend to deal with chronically, definitely get a movement evaluation, like um, from somebody who can look and do a running analysis, and and then a full kind of tiered eval. Because it, not to say that any one thing could cause the stress fracture, but it, it's nice to, once you have an awareness of like, oh, my dorsiflexion of my ankle is not optimal. Like, there's little things that can help take stress off the system and help and help you prevent it the next time around. Yeah. For sure. All right. So Josh, awesome, man. I think what we, we answered like three questions. We have 20, we have 15 more here, so we'll do this again for sure. Um, I have a couple questions for you upon ending this lovely chat on a Monday night. You ready? <laughs> okay. Number one, you have two young children. I'm related to them somehow. I don't even know how that works anymore. Uh, probably second cousins or some shit. Uh, how many hours of sleep are you getting at night? Oh, that's a great question. Thanks. <laughs> so, um, when my cousin's not keeping me up late, I'm generally, uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm generally in bed at 10 up at five thirty. Oh, that's a lot of sleep. You're good. Um, number two, do you have access to an air salt bike? Like a, like an air bike? Hmm. Probably. No, I don't have one in my clinic, but can uh, somewhere one? on campus. I'm sure. Can you find one? Possibly. All right. I'm 41. You're 30, right? Oh, oh no. I saw this. Yeah, I saw this. My challenge <laughs> My challenge to you is 1000 calories in less than an hour. I did it in an hour and 10 seconds. An hour and 10 seconds. It's awful. Right. It's awful, Josh. So wait, why should I do this? Because you're competitive and I'm your older cousin and you're just going to. <laughs> <sighs> Fair enough. Uh, that's all it takes. Awesome guys. Uh, I can't wait to see what he puts up for this thousand calories. Actually, if you guys are listening, thousand calories on any, you know, the, it's winter time, everybody. People are, people are pushed inside, um, this time of year. If you're on the, if you're on the bike, if you're on an aerosol bike, if you're on a treadmill, if you're on a rower or a stairmaster, thousand calories, uh, that's ridiculous, it's, by the way. It's tough. So, so Josh at 30, is going to try to get it in under an hour. He's pretty freaking competitive. I have a feeling he can do it, but he's going to have to commit. So, uh, Josh, let's do this again, okay, man? Sounds good. Thanks, Scott. I appreciate it. <laughs> 